You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. It's good to be together. My name is Dean, the pastor here at City Church. Thanks for gathering with your church family this morning. If you're a guest here, we're really just thankful that you'd give us a shot and, uh, and come be a part of our worship gathering this morning. Uh, and one more reminder that next week, because 63.7% of y'all will be at the beach uh, for 4th of July weekend, uh, we're going to be 9 and 11 next Sunday. 9 and 11, 9 and 11. Just want to keep getting that in your mind. I'm excited for the things that are happening this summer, even though Tallahassee kind of slows down. Ministry goes full speed ahead. Our women's gatherings tomorrow night. Our equipped classes will continue tonight at 5 o'clock. I'll be joining Lance Beecham, our discipleship pastor, and we'll be teaching a class on Mormonism as looking at world religions this summer to help us understand more about what beliefs are all around us. So 5 o'clock tonight in this room, we talk about Mormonism. So we're in Acts chapter 16, finishing that chapter. We've been going verse by verse through Acts uh, since back in January. We're going to take a little break for the month of July. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about how, with 4th of July coming, like how, as Christians, we should think about things like patriotism. That's a pretty important topic. It's also a controversial topic. Uh, So we'll try to get an idea from the scriptures what it looks like for us to think about those things and to think as Christians uh, about such a topic. And then for the month of July, we're doing a series called Christmas in July, uh, where we're going to be looking at God's gifts, God's good gifts he gives us from Ephesians chapter 1 in our salvation. Uh, So we're excited to celebrate that. And then back when August starts, we'll be back in Acts chapter 17. So a little break for about five weeks and then jumping into Acts 17 and to keep going through the rest of the year until we finish that important book. So we're in Acts chapter 16 this morning, finishing that chapter. Let's pray together and we'll jump in. Our Father, we're thankful for the church, that the church was your idea. Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we ask we'll be faithful to that calling. We'll be faithful to that reality. We lift up every church in Tallahassee as they gather today. May the gospel go forward from every pulpit and every sermon preached. Let people understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross and through his resurrection. We also ask you to keep the enemy out of this place that anything the enemy has in store will be kept away uh, from the church going forward. Lord, I ask for all those in this room today, those who maybe are hurting, who have different things happening in their lives, that they will know that you are with them, that you always promise us yourself, that your presence, what a great gift that is. And for those in our church family who are traveling during the summer, this week, next week, Lord, we just ask that you be with them and just guide them back to Tallahassee safely. Help us to have eyes to see, minds to understand, Lord, ears to hear your good news this morning. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a quick context here. Where we are in Acts chapter 16, the setting is Philippi. So the book of Philippians in the New Testament was written to the church in Philippi in terms of what was happening there at the time. So just to give us a little context before I jump into the main part. In verse 16, we see this. Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. So she was a palm reader on North Monroe before it was cool. Uh, And she was a slave girl, so that meant that someone else was going to receive her earnings for her palm reading type business. She made a large profit for her owners, we're told, by fortune telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. You might say, wow, she's like on the team now. Like how neat this person who is a fortune teller, who's like Sister Susie the palm reader, uh, that she now is maybe becoming a Christian. But then we see that's not actually the case. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Like why wouldn't Paul go, amen, that's right, we're from the most high God. Well, turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. He does an exorcism. 
and that demon came out right away. What's happening here is she was not becoming a believer. She was adding the faith that Paul was preaching onto her polyistic, polytheistic worldview. Polytheism means multiple gods. So they in that culture would have said the most high God about any kind of God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 we're not another layer onto this big buffet, this big smorgasbord of faith. Jesus actually is the one true God, not one option among many. Now, how do we know that to be true? Well, one, God promised that he would send a Messiah, that the Messiah actually came, and the resurrection validates that once and for all. What we celebrate on Easter Sunday is what was motivating and fueling this mission because these people were convinced that Jesus actually was the one he claimed to be. So that's the background. This fortune teller is getting a, a demon exorcism, what the word is, exorcism of, from her life, and it came out right away. Well, let's see what happens after that. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, it's like, hey, you can mess with us, but don't touch our money. That starts to create something in people's hearts. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're messing everything up. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us. They're saying someone else other than Caesar is Lord. And for us as Romans to adopt or to practice, to the crowd, the mob scene, joined in the attack against them. And the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. That reminds me of when the guards at the empty tomb which was occupied for a few days after Jesus died, we're told, make sure the stones on there are really tight so nobody can get out, as if that's going to change God's plans. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison. So they're like in maximum security. I mean, there's like, you know, travel channel TV shows about this kind of security. They're in maximum security and secured their feet in the stocks. Why? To make sure there was no chance that these ones who had disturbed the city and were claiming that Jesus Christ is Lord could get away. So why the hostility? Like, why did they actually, like, hate Paul and Silas so much to treat them like this? To beat them, throw them in jail, to make sure their feet were in shekels, in the inner prison, make extra guards. Like, why so intense? They didn't kill anybody. They hadn't even been on trial yet. Why such hostility and angst towards them? Well, the life-changing message of Jesus was messing with people's lives. As one of my friends likes to say, we don't appreciate it when we get poked in the idols. It does something in us. We want to guard on to those things that we worship with all of our might. And for them, they were multiple gods themselves, the culture. They were worshiping everything but the risen Jesus Christ. And here comes Paul and Silas preaching Jesus, and they actually see someone have this demon come out of them, so they can't make profits anymore off of their false religion, and they're outraged. Because this Jesus wasn't some hobby, or a good luck charm, or a moral compass, or a crutch, or a family, or family tradition. He actually was Lord, and following him really did change things, and they're seeing it happen right in front of them. And they accuse them of disturbing the city. What an interesting charge. You know, as a church, it's easy to talk about loving the city. People amen that. 
Like we get excited when you hear about the initiatives we're doing, about what we do through at Godby High School and to help the needs there and how we support a women's pregnancy center and the Hang Tough Foundation here in town and Echo, a great ministry in town, the things that we support and are a part of, our community partners as we call them. Like those things for us are just exciting. They're easy to do. Like no one gets mad at us for helping people. It's a great thing. It's easy to talk about being a blessing to the city. I like to say here at City Church, we're for the gospel, we believe the good news, and because of that, we're for the city, we're for Tallahassee. Love the city, bless the city. But what about disturbing the city? That makes you feel a little more uncomfortable, doesn't it? Like, what does that mean, disturbing the city? Well, I think it means messing with the idols of the city. And people do not like that. They just want a church who's up there and says, hey, just love everybody, and let's all just get along, let's all be kind, and just kind of move on to the rest of the week. When the good news of Jesus really does directly confront the idols of our lives and the idols of our community, what would it look like if this good news actually interfered with Tallahassee? Like, what would change? What would be different? How could it move from just a nice little sleepy Judeo-Christian value sort of town as we pretend it is to a town whose idols are exposed and who are pointed to Jesus Christ? What a charge. They're disturbing the city. I think for almost 16 years now that God has, by his grace, allowed our church to bring a little bit of disturbance to the city. Seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Seeing people transform from death to life. Seeing marriages restored. Seeing people see their work as a mission field. A place to bring glory to God. People's parenting affected, their friendships affected. All by the good news of Jesus for his good and for his glory. My hope is it'll be a, bring a good kind of disturbing to our community. So Paul's in Philippi, that's where all this is happening, and as he's in jail, he writes a letter to the Philippians, and he says this, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Us being flogged and beaten and thrown in jail, it's actually allowed the good news to go forward so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Not because I did anything wrong, they threw me in jail and they were beating me because I'm in Christ, because I know Jesus. Most of the brothers, as in other believers, had gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment. It strengthened their faith, seeing Paul's, and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. If Paul's beaten and will still preach the good news, we can do it too. We can press on. We can go forward. What's anyone going to do to us if God really actually is in control? So Paul's in prison, and by his own words, the reason he's there is because he is in Christ. And the question I ask myself is, would I be guilty of that if I were on trial? Would I be guilty of being in Christ? Now, positionally, all who are Christians would be found guilty of being in Christ. Because the moment of your conversion, you were become one with the Lord. You were joined to God. The doctrine is called union with Christ. It's a really important Christian doctrine. Think of oneness. That now us and the Lord are one together because of Jesus. So positionally, when it comes spiritually to our salvation, every one of us will be found guilty, all who have trusted in Christ in this room, of being in Christ. But how about practically and functionally? Would they know? Would they know that would be true of us? See, Christianity as a good luck charm or a family tradition or a hobby will never get you thrown in jail. It never will. 
Now, I don't want anyone in this room to be put in jail because of their faith. I'm a big believer in religious liberty, like strong believer in it. So I don't want anyone here to be put in jail because of their faith. I don't wish that on any of us. But I do want us to have such a faith that would put us in jail. I don't want anyone to be thrown in jail. But I want all of us to have such a faith that's unwavering in Jesus Christ that could put us there. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Here they are in jail. As far as they know, they're about to be executed. And they're praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, I don't even make it through turbulence in an airplane without almost passing out. And here are these guys in this situation, and they're praising God and singing to him. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake. Now, in this time, these people had heard legends in the past of their Greek gods and stories of earthquakes that had taken place. So who knows what was going through their mind as soon as this was actually happening in front of them. Here's the kind of earthquake it was. The foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. Now keep in mind, we believe that Jesus rose from the grave. So nothing else in the New Testament is too radical or crazy or extreme to believe. And we actually think Easter is true. This is like small potatoes compared to that. When the jailer woke up, just be standing guard and here he is sleeping... Why? Because they're shackled. They're in the inner prison. They can't escape. Nothing's going to happen to them. I can take a nap. I can scroll on my phone. Nothing's going to happen to these people. We've dealt with it. And what happened? He saw the doors of the prison standing open. Imagine that moment. He drew his sword and was going to kill himself. Why? Because they were going to kill him for letting that happen, letting the prisoners escape. So he figured he might as well do that himself, tragically. Why? Because he thought the prisoners had escaped. It was his own death sentence. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. Now, if you're in prison for something something you didn't do at this time and the doors blow open, there's a big hole in the wall, what are you doing? I mean, you're out. I mean, you're at Kusha's by noon for lunch, right? I mean, you're out but they're staying there. Why, maybe God has something more in store for this story than simply these men being released from prison. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He's rightly terrified. So he escorted them out and said, he knew why they were there. They were proclaiming the name of the most high God and disturbing the city as a result. And he asked the most important question you can ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What an important question. I would say the most important question. And that instinct is there, what do I need to do? What's required of me? How much morals do I need to, how much do I need to increase my morals, increase my ethical performance? How many religious duties do I need to achieve and check off my list in order to be saved? What must I do? And what they say, don't overcomplicate the message. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That he is the Messiah, the promised one of God. And you know what's going to happen if you do? You will be saved. You will be saved. You and your whole household. As in when your relatives believe, they're going to become Christian. They're going to be saved from their sins too. 
and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, this is the jailer, and washed their wounds, Paul and Silas. So we see real life change happening here. From being the guard watching over them to him now serving them and caring for them. We see repentance has taken place, turning from your old life to your new. And right away, he and all his family were baptized. He made a a decision to trust in Jesus and be saved. And as a result, his family made the same commitment and they were all baptized to proclaim their faith publicly in Jesus Christ. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Here's a man, a scene before, about to kill himself. And Paul says, do not choose death. Choose life. And his name is Jesus. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. Like, just kind of get out of here. They'll just kind of go about your business. We saw the earthquake. We're not messing with you anymore. Like, we can take a hint. And we're, you know, for the big, and their eyes are like, okay, big guy upstairs. Okay, go. But what happens? Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial. Although we're Roman citizens, that's illegal to be charged and beaten in the Roman culture as a citizen without a trial. They threw us in jail. And now, are they going to send us away secretly? He's like, certainly not. He's like, y'all, I'll make a spectacle about this. Just going to point people to faith in Jesus Christ. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort them out. So we want them to see and understand and know. So police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. Like, wow, we really messed this up. We could be held accountable for what we have done. So they came to appease them. And escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. Please just get out of here. You've disturbed our city, an earthquake. They're like saying, it reminds me of Dumb and Dumber. Our pets' heads are falling off. I mean, all these things are happening. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. As in God's moving. God's got this. He's sovereign. Other believers in this house, stay the course. Don't get discouraged. It's worth it. What an incredible story. But there's more to the story than us just going, wow, that's really neat. I can't believe that happened. He opened up the jail and freed the people and the prisoner you know, didn't take his own life and took on Jesus instead. And there's some things I think they're important here for us to understand and grasp. And the first one is a confidence in God's sovereignty. That we really actually do believe that God is in control of all the affairs of this world and our lives. It's important to know that saying that God is in control is not Christian cliche. It is based on a clear theological conviction that God really is involved, not just involved, he is the overseer of all things in this world. That he is fully sovereign. There's a lot of mystery to that. I think it's important as Christians that we have a posture of humility. We don't know how all that works. We know that he is truly sovereign. What else could allow these men to sing hymns, to sing spiritual songs while they're imprisoned? I mean, I'd have been losing my mind. And here they are singing psalms while locked up and likely soon to be facing their execution. How could that happen? Well, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, wrote this. He said, for me, like, do what you want to do to me, because for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
You're going to spare my life? Great. I'm going to keep living for Jesus. Keep proclaiming his good news. Keep planting churches, encouraging the brothers and sisters. For me, to live as Christ and to die? You think you have power over me? You know what's going to happen when I die? I'm going to go to eternity and be with Jesus forever. That's his way of saying God's got this. God's got this. And by saying God's got this, he's not saying that God's going to operate exactly as we always think he should operate. That's one of the hardest parts about our faith, isn't it? And I have an idea of the way things should go. And as one who believes in God and believes that God loves me and wants what's best for me, I have a kind of a little blueprint of how I think things should work out. And they don't go as planned. The first you know, temptation is to go, God, where are you in this? But here's Paul saying, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to work out. But I do know this, for me to live is to live for Jesus. Even though I don't have every single question answered. And to die is to be with Jesus. But God is sovereign. He really does have us in his hands. Every breath, he knows the number of our days. Think about that for a minute. He knows the numbers of our, number of our days. I don't know who first said it has been passed around forever that has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Think about that for a minute. God's never like, whoa! I didn't see that coming. It's important that we hold to a strong sovereignty of God because we really do believe that he is the one who is in control of all things. It's impossible to sing songs in jail when you're about to be executed unless you believe in the sovereignty of God. May our hearts receive that. Yes, I'm for things, I know anxiety's real, I know stress is real, I know depression's real, I know all those things are real, and I'm thankful for common grace that God has given us counselors and medical attention. I, I, I see a counselor just to help with my anxiety, I kinda have a crazy life and a lot of things going on and it's just helpful for me, like I'm pro all of those things but you could have everything you possibly could want healed and cured and fixed and everything else. But unless your heart rests in the sovereignty of God, you will never truly be at peace. Praise God we can have symptoms treated. Praise God we can have physical healing. But in our hearts, they'll never actually really be in sync with God and be able to sing songs while in jail unless we really believe that he is God and a God who is good and a God who is sovereign and a God who never has anything occur to him. The second thing we see is a visible portrait of an invisible reality. Yes, this is a real event that happens here. There's actually some really strong spiritual metaphors. We see the doors of the prison open. We see chains loosened. We see people go from death to life. That's exactly what happens to us in our salvation. We were once dead and are made alive spiritually. We were enslaved to sin. And those shekels come off by God's grace and we're now free to walk in the new life that he has given us. This amazing visible portrait pointing us to something else that is the ultimate release from spiritual prison that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice here the jailer seems, and I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but I've read this text like a million times this week. Notice the jailer is much more the focus of the story than Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas are beaten, they're released, like things definitely happen here. They tell the, the leaders of that time to walk them out, like we're going to make a spectacle out of this, but 
it really seems to hone in on the jailer, his family, his hospitality, his decision to try to take his life. Why is he such a focus here? Well, because the heart of God is on display. The heart of God is for the person who is spiritually imprisoned. Yes, Paul and Silas were physically in jail, but that jailer was spiritually in shekels. He was spiritually in the most secure part of the prison where no one could escape unless God intervened. We see God's heart for the lost, for the person who's far from him. He was the one, this jailer, who was really actually imprisoned. And here the Lord, by his grace, sets him free. Third thing, I mentioned this earlier, the most important question one can ask when faced with the reality of who God is, the reality of life and death is how can I be saved? And saved from what? Saved from God's just punishment for sin. See, we often see sin as, oh, I made a mistake, I'll try better next time, God knows my heart, I'm a great person, it's no big deal. We have to remember not just that we've sinned and made mistakes, but who it is we've actually sinned against. And that is God himself. And our God cannot let sin go unpunished. What kind of God would that be? It would contradict his holiness, his righteousness, everything about him. But our holy God is also a loving God who does not leave us to be punished as our sins deserve, but sent Jesus who never sinned, who owed nothing of a debt for his sin because he had none. He was perfect. He died in our place on the cross instead of us so we might become righteous, forgiven, made new, free from spiritual imprisonment, taken from death to life forever. Notice here, the question is profound, how can I be saved? That's a pretty deep question. But notice the answer is simple. Believe. It's by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. Now, some try to isolate that text and say maybe household, like children, are kind of grandfathered into the faith. Notice a few verses later, as I read at the beginning of the sermon, they come to faith too. Like your parents' faith is not enough for you. Your grandparents' faith is not enough for you. Thank God for it. But they had their own sins to be forgiven for, just like you do. It's also important to note here that salvation comes by hearing. The earthquake happens. He still has to ask the question, how can I be saved? And the gospel is articulated to him. I was on a plane in New Orleans a couple weeks ago, and I was going down to our Network of Churches annual meeting where we celebrate the missionaries we're sending, the churches we're planting, all the things that we financially contribute to and cooperate together with other churches. I'm a big believer that you can do a whole lot more together uh, that you can't apart as churches. I love working together nationally, globally, to take the good news of God's love to as many people as possible. So I'm on a plane in New Orleans, and again, I'm a nervous flyer, so I'm like, like chatty Kathy the whole way on a plane. Such as there's no TV, I'm like, tell me your life story, please. Like, let's like debate top 10 greatest third basemans ever. Please, like, like, give me something here kind of idea. And this guy's sitting next to me, and he's got his headphones in, so I'm like, he's not really feeling it. He's kind of locked in. And, and so, but he was still friendly, and I kind of made a quick, small talk, like, hey, are you, are you from New Orleans? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool, you know, all right, big gulps on, right? He just kind of kept going. And he has this big cross on his forearm. I mean, like, big, like, bold, like, huge, 
green tattooed cross from his elbow like all the way to his wrist. Like serious stuff going on here. I was like, oh, well, that's a conversation starter. If you're gonna go like that loud and proud, I'm gonna assume you're a Christian. But we're going to New Orleans, someone who was from New Orleans, and like almost all of New Orleans is kind of cultural Catholic. So I kind of nudged him, we're in the air, and I said, I said, hey, I see your, see your cross there, your tattoo. He's like, yeah. And I said, uh, I said are, are you Catholic? He's like, oh, no, man, I'm not. I said, oh, are you, what are you? He goes, I'm nothing. I was on Bourbon Street one night, got really junk, and woke up the next day and had this tattoo. I'm like, bro, what were you doing? <laughs> That's some serious Bourbon Street. And he picked a cross? I mean, like, what? Like, okay. He said, yeah, I just woke up and this was there. And I was like, wow, that's a little intense. That's not like I'm mad at my mom tattoo. You know what I mean? Like, that's not that. That's like, that, that's like serious business. So he went back to watching his little, you know, on his little tablet or whatever. And I was like, okay. But I'm going, I can't leave it open like that. I've got to, I've got to talk to him. <laughs> I mean, come on, I've got a like softball right in front of me here. So I was going to wait a little bit. I was hoping for turbulence for a second so I could be like, hey, you know, but, but, but that, that didn't happen. So smooth flight, eh, God's sovereign, okay, you know, so, so we land, so we, so you know, now it takes forever to taxi once you land. And like, we can have all these advancements in culture, but one thing we cannot figure out is how to deboard a plane, right? It takes like an hour, right? So right when we land, right when we land, I look over to him and I'm like, hey, I haven't think about what to say. And I, I go, hey, how, how neat that every single time you look at your arm, you're reminded of what God has done for you. Isn't that cool? That every time, from waking up the next morning from your Bourbon Street tattoo, to right now sitting on this plane, when you brush your teeth, get ready in the morning, whatever it is, like anytime you look at your arm, you're reminded of God's love for you and what he did on the cross. And he's like, oh yeah, huh. I didn't really thought of it like that. I was like, yeah. He's like, my grandpa was a Christian. I was like, whoopty freaking you know, No, but I didn't say that, no. I, I, I was like, oh. I was like, okay, yeah. And he said, yeah, my grandpa was a Christian. And so we talked for a little bit, and he wasn't interested in becoming a believer himself. But my hope is that now going forward, every time he looks at that, which is all the time, it's on his arm, that, you know, he's not like noncommittal, like, you know, Panama City stamp on the back. Like, he's like, here, right? Okay. So I, my hope is that every time he looks at that for the rest of his life, he's Reminded of that quick little conversation we had of what Christ has done for him and eventually he'll believe it himself and God will send someone to share the good news with him when he's ready. But here's the point about this. God definitely, I believe, does things in our lives to get our attention. I do believe that God uses signs to point us to things to draw us to himself. But signs and symbols and events and moments and worship services are not enough. You must believe yourself that Jesus is the one he claimed to be and give your life to him and repent of your sins. Yes, the doors opened up. Yes, the shackles were off their legs. Yes, the prison was wide opened. All the evidence of this guy right in front of him. But he still had to believe. And not just believe what's best for you. He had to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be saved. So if all the signs in the world point you somewhere other than Jesus, just know they're probably pointing you to something that's not of God. And the next thing is that man's plans can't ever change God's plans. Never. Even the prisoners, the actual physical prisoners, Paul and Silas, didn't run out the wall because they knew that God 
I guess God laid it upon their hearts that they still had work to do. They had ministry in front of them to do. That they thought that if we put them in the inner prison, if we have enough guards, we tie up their legs really tight, if we put guards by this tomb where Jesus lays dead and tighten that stone really in there intensely, but those plans can never override God's plans. Please know that today. Nothing of human effort can ever combat what God has willed and what God has in store. Paul even points to his Roman citizenship. Now, why would he do that? Was he flexing? Like, what, what's, what's the big deal here? Well, and by their law, then you can't beat and send someone to jail unless they have a fair trial. Paul just got beaten and thrown in jail. So they broke their own law by doing that. So why doesn't Paul just get out of town? Great, led the prisoner to Christ. Awesome, let's go encourage the church and go on our business. But he mentions that, and he brings it back again a little later in the book of Acts. And most commentators that I read this week and people's opinions on this really kind of do agree that what's happening here is Paul's taking care of the church. The church he's going to leave behind eventually and go to the next city that Paul's caring for them. And the fact that he's basically validating the work and validating the message. That, hey, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. Like, we're Roman citizens. He's doing kind of anything he can to relieve the church from some persecution. So that not, not that persecution should always be avoided. Uh, there's times where we're told in the scriptures that people are, are, feel honored for being persecuted for the Lord. But here, the goal is the gospel flourishing. So while Paul's moving to the next city, he's trying to maybe give them a little bit of a breather, a little bit of like a relief to take the gospel forward. And the, of course, that would st- they would still be beaten, they would still be imprisoned, still martyred for their faith, but maybe some more doors were opened as a result of Paul pointing to that citizenship and saying, hey, don't mess with us right now. If you're gonna do it, at least be fair and try us because something we actually did, not something that makes you feel uncomfortable. But I do believe the main part of this story is the fact that God had a plan for that prison guard. And it was to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality is for everyone in this room who is a believer, God had a plan for you to believe. He might not have brought a physical earthquake, but he brought a spiritual one to you. That awakened your eyes to see your need to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. To make you have to ask the question, what must I do in order to be saved? And that answer is right in front of you. And his name is Jesus. So remember, if you're a believer in this room, that you're a believer because God freed you from your spiritual prison cell. And if you're not a believer in this room, you're not sure whatever it could be, I'm sure you're a great person. I don't deny that for a second. I believe that you have good morals, good values. I believe all those things. But here's the reality. God does not judge you based on how you measure up to morality in suburban Tallahassee in 2023. The standard God uses is himself. And we compare ourselves to God, we fall short every single time. And if you've ever been presented a Christianity that has no judgment of God, then you're presented a Christianity that didn't need a cross. And the Good Friday is tragic and unnecessary. But please know this, Jesus did go to the cross. Why? To die for you. To die for you. So you wouldn't have to die for you. And he rose from the grave three days later, proving once and for all he was the one he claimed to be. He ascended to heaven and one day will come again to make all things new. So I would urge you to trust in Christ. 
We have a care room out in the lobby every Sunday. Have folks available to have a conversation with you, pray with you, point you to what it means to believe in Jesus. To join that prison guard. And you, and maybe one day by God's grace, your whole household can be saved. And please know that when you hear the word saved, that's not some like Baptist revivalistic southern language that gets a bad connotation. It's Bible language. It's Bible language. Like we must be saved from our sins. But thankfully, God has given us the way to do it, and his name is Jesus. And we sing songs of the faith, and we pray, and we gather together, and we hear the scriptures. What we're doing is we're celebrating the one who has accomplished all of this for us. Our allegiance is to Christ and not into this world. It's why Paul could say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. God loves us. He sent his son to die for us, and he truly is sovereign over all things. He is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for the truth of the scriptures. We are thankful that all those in this room who know Jesus have been freed from a spiritual prison. And the hardest thing in a place like Tallahassee, where everything oftentimes can look good and seem all right, is that we're blinded by the fact that we're in a spiritual prison. Lord, forgive us if we compare ourselves to others for our standard of goodness rather than to you. And I ask we compare ourselves to you that we won't have guilt or shame anymore. We'll have assurance knowing that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. But just reconcile us to you. Forgive us. I'm thankful that every Christian in this room, that no one in this room is 99% forgiven. So because of your grace, we are as forgiven as forgiven can possibly be this side of heaven. The slate is clean. Our past is not held over our head. If anyone's in Christ, that we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We have so much to be grateful for this morning. So I ask that the people in this room today leave today encouraged in their faith, knowing that you are sovereign, that you are good, that your plans cannot be stopped or slowed down, and that you are still in the business of freeing prisoners from their spiritual jail cell, that no one is too far from your grace. There are no lost causes. There are no people too far gone. Why? Because you so love the world that you gave your only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We rejoice in that today. We're thankful for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.